Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Bringing Israel and the diaspora together. This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Thank you for the response to my recent interview with Yaakov Lapin. I interviewed him in Israel because of his stunning prediction of the rise of Islamic State in his book The Virtual Caliphate, published a decade ago. And while we were putting his latest thoughts on tape, his next prediction on the potential for a second wave of refugees flooding into Europe also came true. And while you're scrolling down the list of my previous episodes, one of my personal favourites is with the biographer of Balfour, Lord Leslie Turnberg. That's episode 13. Today, we try to unpack the psyche of the Muslim diaspora living among us in the West. I would still be sitting around bashing Israel because that becomes the last refuge of the Muslim liberal. Too often, Muslim liberals are liberal on every count, you know. They, they, they tick every box on gay rights, on gender equality, on democracy, on freedom. And then the last refuge, the last way in which, oh, I'm still Muslim, is to say, I'm anti-Israeli or I'm, or I'm anti-Jewish. That's, that has got to go. Ed Hussein is a Muslim reformer. His narrative on Islam is a determined strike against the Islamists who've emerged so fervently in domestic events and in the politics of the West. And Ed should know he was once one of those firebrands. Ed is the author of The Islamist, an account of his five years as an activist in Britain, and The House of Islam, a global history, which discusses the classical tenets of Islam and the ways in which they have been distorted by the political Islamists. He regularly advises on government, national security and combating extremist ideology. His evolution as a man is similar to that of another Muslim reformer, Majid Noas. And while Majid embraces humanist and liberal values, Ed remains a man of orthodox religious Muslim practice. And the tectonic plates of change are shifting, he says. The Sunni world's acceptance of Israel is fast evolving. Despite their threat to Israel and the world, Iran and its Shia proxies are actually proving a unifying force. New maps of the Muslim mind are being drawn and old hatreds are on the run. The anti-Semitic craze was powerful in the 1960s, but now Sunni Arab neighbours are changing course. Islamist leaders are losing their appeal, says my guest. But is that in hope? or expectation? One of the many fascinating questions I got to ask today's guest on Johnny Gould's Jewish State, Ed Hussein. Ed Hussein, welcome to Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Now, you're a Londoner from Limehouse. Originally, you began your Muslim religious life with your parents at the Brick Lane Mosque. I don't think there's a building in London which better demonstrates the historical melting pot of our capital city. Once a Huguenot church, uh, then a synagogue, now of course a mosque. Apparently it still has Hebrew and mezuzahs in the building as your dad was a community elder, you were allowed to roam around the building yourself. Very impressed by your knowledge of, of the East End and the, 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 the mosque and indeed what it previously was, the synagogue. You're absolutely right, Johnny. And one reason why the Jewish elders in the 60s and 70s sold it to my father's community was because we both believe in the one Abrahamic God, the God of Israel, and the Jewish elders did not want this building to be uh, a serving point for any other, whether it was a bingo hall or a cinema hall, they wanted God worship. And I think that's remarkable that they, they recognize the fact that Muslims also worship 
and love and are loyal to the one God of Israel, God of Abraham. Unlike, if I may say so, some of our evangelical friends that seem to think Muslims worship some other God. The amount of pubs I see called the Temperance, named after temperance halls in the 19th century, is slightly alarming. So it's, it's very nice that it remains a house of God. Uh, let me ask, was it a place, and an environment of tolerance when you were a child? Were you made aware that this was a house of God for you know, both Protestant Christians from Europe and um, Jews from Europe too? We were made aware that this was certainly a place of worship. We were made aware that Jewish people were here before we were there as Muslims. We you know, saw plaques that were in Hebrew. Um, as you say, they're still there. But we knew it was a church for a period of time. I.e. initially it was, it was a church, but we didn't know that it was you know, a Protestant church and the Huguenots were running away from France. Uh, so was, it, was it tolerant? Um, we didn't think about tolerance, other than the fact that there were lots of Jewish people there, Jewish bakers were still there in Brooklyn, lots of Jewish um, clothes merchants, textile factories. So it was, it was just part of the mixed rich of being in the East End. Yeah. Then as a teenager, you drifted away from your parents' teachings and joined the East London Mosque and you engaged with Muslim Brotherhood. Now this was a time around the years after the Iranian Revolution. Something happened in the Muslim community around the world. Yeah, so this is a, a great question, Johnny, and I think it's linked to your previous question in that we were born and raised in London, but it was never explained to us that this is a pluralist country, this is a tolerant country, that we abhor violent political solutions, that you know, your identity is one of being British in a pluralist society. And it was never explained to us that Muslims are here because before us, Jewish people had been killed on the continent and we now moved to a historical stage, a consciousness, if you like, in Hegelian sense, that we now respect and tolerate each other. That was never explained to us in our schools. So when in the East London Mosque, there was support for Hamas, there was support for the Muslim Brotherhood. And as you correctly identify in the 80s with the Iranian Revolution, we too often forget, Johnny, that the Iranian revolutionary leader, Ayatollah Khomeini, put a fatwa on the head of a British author, Salman Rushdie. And it was that point that Muslims here started to get radicalized that, um, you know, you can't criticize the Prophet Muhammad. You can't ask historical questions about the veracity of many of the claims that were being made by, whether it's the Prophet Muhammad or whether it was others before him. I'm not questioning the true inclination of believers towards God. What I am questioning is that all of us should be free to say whatever we want to question who, whomever we want, and we should not bring in blasphemy doors through the back door that stop the free inquiry that allows all of us to thrive. And that's the bedrock of the West. You lose that inheritance from J Jerusalem, from Rome, and from Athens. We become, I'm afraid, again, barbarians. And we've got to stop that regress by allowing all of us to be free. That was stopped by the Iranian government and the Salman Rushdie fatwa. And in the East End, we saw that in the 80s, because we were all protesting against Rushdie without reading his book. But worse, in the 90s, Bosnia happened where white, blonde, blue-eyed Muslims, they were being killed only two hours from Heathrow Airport. Now suddenly we were asking, oh, well, if the Holocaust happened and we said never again, why was it that Muslims were being killed and no one wanted to intervene in the Balkans? So I think there was this cognitive dissonance that we were wanting to have it both ways, that you know, Muslim first, foreign policy in other words you've got to intervene in Bosnia because Muslims are being killed but at the same time you know, not allowing for European freedoms 
and freedom of speech, freedom to think, freedom of assembly, which allows for criticism of of uh, you know early Muslim history and the formation of our scriptures. You know, so so so, so that madness, I, I think, in large measure contributed to the appeal of the East London Mosque, yeah. which was a more radical mosque, a more confrontational mosque. Um, and a more literalist mosque um, and a much, much, much more politicised mosque. So those guys were talking about the politics, whereas the elders in the Brick Lane Mosque were basically head down, long beards, pray, love, um, be loyal to God. So it's a different kind of Islam, the Islam mm-hmm. of the Brick Lane. Well, much more Sufi, Chabad type, if you like. <laughs> Chabad Islam of love right. and compassion. Yes. So, at that time, as an impressionable young man, you joined the British faction of the Hizbut Tahrir, an Islamist group which called for a caliphate in which uh, activities you were involved in for, for five years. Um, this must have caused a great deal of heartache in your family. You've hit the nail on the head, Johnny. It was more for family and for the wider community because I was raised in the, in the Chabad version of Islam, in the more Sufi, loving, mystical, compassionate, kind merciful version of Islam and my father was indeed a gentleman who covered his head all the time and who had a nice silvery long beard and woke up in the morning at five o'clock to pray to God when I got involved with Hezbo Tahrir the first thing I noticed was I was no longer praying on time and that worried me and my father would point it out that so in the name of wanting to create God's government you've become distant from God and he would keep pointing that out and he was right I was out till one o'clock in the morning organising rallies um, putting out pamphlets and posters across the East End speaking out against the American presence in the Middle East calling for the troops to be the American troops to be moved from Bosnia to be moved from uh, then Saudi Arabia in the 1990s whereas my father was engaged in love for God and worship so that worried me and secondly the fact that Every time I went to the Brick Lane Mosque or other mosques and called on Muslims to mobilize, to radicalize, to overthrow Muslim governments, to overthrow, uh, indeed the British government, to work towards creating a caliphate globally. I mean, this may seem far-fetched, but that's where we were. Yeah. Now, Downing Street had to have the flag of Islam. Buckingham Palace had to have the flag of Islam. That was the naive teenage agitation for global domination. In all of that, it was the elders in the mosques that threw us out. You know, be it Reclaim Mosque or be it mosques in Nottingham. It was the elders who found what we were saying to be offensive, radical, and most importantly to them, un-Islamic. Yeah. So yes, I spent many years in, in that milieu before I realized it was um, complete baloney and had no real rooting in Islamic history, as in classical Islamic history of, even if you believe in a caliphate, you know, the, the Ottomans in the 1850s decriminalized homosexuality. We forget that. You know, the, the, the most famous caliphs, Harun al-Rashid onwards and before, the Umayyads, you know, they drank wine freely. They appreciated the arts. And we know that from the sculptures that remain from that period. Right. That was not the pluralistic Islam that Hezbo Tahrir and their caliphate wanted to create. Yeah. So it was during your studies at Newham College in 1995 that you had that epiphany to quote another religious term, to leave the group. Apparently you witnessed the stabbing of a Christian student. What did you think the radicals stood for before you witnessed that? It was, in my mind, something that was always 
about ideas, something that was relevant over there in Bosnia. But not violence. And not here in England. Right. It almost felt as though we were mobilising for revolution in the Muslim world. We wanted to remove every Muslim government over there. Yes, the Saudi government had to go, the the Moroccans, the Jordanians in particular, we seem to have a a real venom for. But all of those governments were, quote-unquote, illegitimate, and they had to go. And we saw jihad as a legitimate means for doing so. But over there, what we didn't realize what that, that was that the moment you unleash that beast, the moment you create that monster, it hurts you here at home. So, I mean, I witnessed that, I think it was 94, 95, the, the murder of this student. And that, that seeing someone dead who I knew because of the rhetoric of Hezbollah Tahrir around jihad and Muslim supremacism and the hatred for anyone that disagreed with us, including other Muslims, for me, was the logical conclusion of those teachings. So, you know, now we talk about Al Qaeda and ISIS and Wahhabism and uh, ideological extremes, and we saw that happen on our college campuses. You raise the temperature, you make the other mm-hmm. someone to hate, and then before you know it, someone somewhere will take up arms, and violence ensues from that mindset. So, the mood music is what we were playing, and I quickly identified that led to killings and suicide bombings. Now, I'm from Birmingham, so this change in temperature happened before my eyes too, to pupils from my school. In the 70s, I was a primary school pupil at King David School in Birmingham, which wasn't exclusively Jewish. It was a pluralistic school with about 65% Jewish kids, 35% non-Jewish kids, including two brothers, Mozam and Azam Beg. They were classmates and schoolmates, respectively. I know both of those people. To people listening to this podcast who ask, what's the point of outreach? Because those guys have forgotten about their association with uh, the Jewish school they were part of, forgot their parents, who I also knew, who were very different to them. What would you say? What's the point of outreach to those people who are saying that because of what they became? The outreach factor is absolutely fundamental to who we are as human beings. It's honoring one another's humanity. There's a verse in the Quran that says when God created Adam, I recognize and fully appreciate that these are Jewish narratives that Muslims have lent on heavily for the Quran. There's a beautiful verse that says, you know, with Adam and with humanity as a metaphor for that, that I blew into Adam from my own soul. Mm-hmm. The Hindus believe that the divine is within each and every human being, hence their bow. I think the Japanese have a similar belief. And we as the children of Abraham must recognize that there's a common humanity that the children of Abraham are charged with in terms of the, the, the light of, of God being placed in each and one of us and the responsibility on the children of Abraham of carrying on that light. This is the promise of God to Abraham. And the point of outreach, therefore, is that we are charged through divine mandate, but also by being citizens in the modern world, that we've got to recognize and respect each other's humanity. Now, Mazen Beg may have grown up and then put more emphasis on his Muslim nationalism and his Muslim supremacism, but he's wrong to have forgotten his you know, Davidic education. Mm-hmm. And one reason why I'm able to sit here and have this conversation with you is because you and I share John T. Feldman as a friend who opened my eyes to Israel, to the, the, the right of the Jewish people to be in that country. And, you know, I'm proud, therefore, to say that my support and love for Israel 
and for the rights of its neighbors comes from being exposed to the outrage of, uh, of, of a Jewish friend, without whom I would still be sitting around bashing Israel because that becomes the last right. refuge of the Muslim liberal. Too often Muslim liberals are liberal on every count, you know, they, they, they take every box on gay rights and gender equality, on democracy, on freedom, and then the last refuge, the last way in which, oh, I'm still Muslim, is to say I'm anti-Israeli or I'm, or I'm anti-Jewish. That's, that has got to go as the first line of hatred. And I think, you know, that only comes about through outreach. And the last thing I'll say is this, that because of the outreach that we're seeing now across the Middle East from Jewish friends in Israel and indeed Israeli citizens and Israeli government, what you're seeing is many, many leading Arab governments and politicians and princes and business people have a newfound love for Jewishness and for the state of Israel because of that outreach from Jerusalem. Yeah. And today here in, in the UK and especially in the English-speaking world, Jewish people have, I think, a double responsibility to reach out to Muslims here and Muslims equally to open up to Jewish people because what's going on in the Middle East is a greater recognition of Israel and we lose falling behind thanks to Bernie Sanders and the Jeremy Corbyn narrative because something is changing in the Middle East and increased openness and the best evidence for those who ask for that is look at the Abrahamic family house being built in Abu Dhabi where we have a synagogue for the first time in God knows how long I mean I'd say for the first time in 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 there's a synagogue in Bahrain but it's not being used but for, you know, for the first time since the beginning of Islam that a synagogue is built, being built in the Arabian Peninsula yeah. that's significant the Bahraini synagogue you know, isn't in frequent use but in the Arabian Peninsula where Islam was founded a synagogue is being built and a Jewish community being built by the United Arab Emirates and others will emulate that that's significant so that's going on in the region whereas here we are with this increased animosity between Muslims and Jews. And because of our animosity, lefty loons like Jeremy Corbyn can think, oh, I've got 30 constituencies, 3 million Muslims. Don't worry about the 200,000 Jewish community. So we've got to fix it among ourselves as the children of Abraham before you know our politicians wake up to the fact they can't divide and rule in the way that they want to. Amen, I think is what I might say I mean, we say, at the yeah. end of, uh, of that. Um, your evolution as a person in that particular answer is there to see seems very similar to another high-profile reformer within your religion, Majid Noas. We both served time, if you like, together in Hezbollah Tahrir. Majid lasted longer. He, he, you know, he then literally served time in Egypt. Um, you know, we, we founded the Quilliam Foundation together. We went to Soas. Um, you know, we, 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 see, we see Islam and Muslims... Um, as allies and friends and fellow believers in creating a world in which there's greater love and human compassion. The House of Islam, a global story. Um, you contrast the pluralism practiced in Muslim societies of the past with the stance of modern fundamentalists, explaining how this transition toward isolationism um, occurred over um, a time. And I think what you've just said in a nutshell, is what the non-Muslim world looks on at. What's happened? What's happened to the Islamic world? Several things have happened, and uh, another great question, Johnny. The first thing is that Bernard Lewis, God rest his soul, used to always say that Muslims were a conquering people. 
you know, even when we were small in number, be it in Egypt, be it in India, be it in Spain, we were the ruling class. Now, for the first time in history, we have to acquaint ourselves with a new reality in which we are not the ruling class. 30 million Muslims live here and we have to accept from that reality the second point, which is a secular government. 30 million Muslims live where? In the West. In the West. In the West, yeah. 30 million Muslims in the West. For the first time in history, Muslims would come, do trade and leave, and that was after the Enlightenment, and then before the Enlightenment, try to conquer, i.e. Vienna you know, in, in the 1680s or the 730s, the Battle of Poitiers, Poitiers in France. So there were attempts for Muslims to conquer. Now Muslims are here not as conquerors but as citizens in a secular state, and that's the issue. Muslims haven't, got, haven't been able to accept what it means to live in a secular nation-state in which your identity as a secular citizen comes first, your piety in your relationship with God is between you and your Lord, and that manifests in your virtues and goodness and charity and love and virtue, rather than trying to control the government through Sharia. That reality for Muslims hasn't, um, hasn't become yeah. fully understood. And the third issue, because of these two big crises, one, you know, the, the, the loss of status, two, now in secular countries, three, there's been a genuine loss of confidence confidence in our history, a confidence in our identity, a confidence in our scriptures, a confidence in our place in the world, a confidence in our psychology. Don't forget, tiny Israel has won every battle that multiple Arab governments have launched at it. That does something to the psyche of 300 million Arabs with which Muslims share a religious and a linguistic affinity. So the loss of confidence is, I think, under, you know, underpinning the spasms, the suicide bombings, the hatred, the, the knife attacks, the desire to dominate, the reading of history as the caliphate must return and Jews, Christians and others must be under the control of Muslims globally. That's, that, that, that kind of psychological dissonance hasn't been addressed. So if you ask what went wrong, that's what went wrong. Right. It's very, very interesting to have um, an example of the psyche. This is extremely interesting to me. Want to hear about an amazing medical story emerging from the startup nation? A new generation of young Israelis, mostly PhDs, creating world-class medical miracles. It's the story of Cytoreason, just three years old, 50 employees, using artificial intelligence and machine learning to improve how drugs work on your body, even making new comparisons between diseases that weren't possible before. Tel Aviv is growing again. Saito Reason's story features in my sister podcast, Johnny Gould's SME Walkabout. Search for Johnny Walks where you get this podcast. Uh, recently in The Spectator, you wrote that a new narrative is emerging in the Middle East. New maps of the Muslim mind are being drawn. Old hatreds are on the run. The anti-Semitic craze to destroy Israel, powerful 50 years ago, but now Sunni Arabs are changing course and Islamists are losing their appeal. Is that in hope rather than expectation as rockets fly north and south into Israel? Those rockets are not coming from the United Arab Emirates, no. from Saudi Arabia. No. But they're coming from a significant enemy, Iran and its proxies. And that significant enemy, Iran and its proxies, have given the State of Israel allies that it hadn't foreseen only five years ago. Yeah. And I think that, that's important. It's also given the, 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 the state of Israel new allies across the West in the way that you know, 
multiple European governments have a newfound sympathy. If we're if if we're successful as those who, who who love the Middle East and love the state of Israel and love our allies in the region, if we're successful in bolstering and consolidating that new mood between Jerusalem and the Gulf Arabs in particular and therefore by extension Egypt mm -hmm. that's 90 million Arabs in Egypt 35 plus million in, in, in Saudi Arabia then most of North Africa just doesn't in, engage with all of this in the way that the Palestinian yeah. Hamas do what we do is we, 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 we then force Hamas and others to ask themselves the questions are you with the Iranians who are not Sunni and not Arab or are you with your Sunni Arab brethren? It's a strategic shift that Hamas guys have to undergo. So I think, yes, the rockets are worrying, but we should keep our eye on the long game here and the long strategic outlook, which is, you know, Israel is now welcome at the Dubai World Expo. Israeli cyclists are now going through every, every emirate in the United Arab Emirates. Israelis are welcome in Bahrain. Israelis are welcome in Saudi Arabia. The, um, a prominent rabbi yeah. was there only uh, a couple of weeks ago. So. You know, in our wildest dreams, we would not have seen this you know, four or five years ago. So there's a there's a momentum and a shift that we should honor. And, and all of us collectively should pray for the downfall of the fascist regime in Iran. So the people of Iran can come to the fore and be what they were previously, which is people who want civilization and growth. I mean, don't forget that um, the, the, the festival of Purim, that, 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 that's something that comes out of the, that Persian civilization. So we can return again to those days and we should always be optimistic and look to the future with optimism and therefore you know, pray collectively for the downfall of the fascist government in Iran. You've answered in a stroke the, th the next three questions that I had. No, I mean, this is really, so I'll just paraphrase them and move on, which is that in my most recent podcast with Yaakov Lapin, a military researcher and strategist, he went as far as saying, the Palestinians were bottom of their list of priorities. Israel's visits to Oman and Sudan, places of Israel hate not long ago. We have now seen a change in the Sunni world at a time when Iran, with its brand of theological fascism, poses a threat to Israel and the Arab world alike. And Colonel Richard Kemp, who's appeared on this podcast twice, told me more than once that the world's biggest threat to peace uh, was from Iran and its proxies tooled up in Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Gaza, even Yemen, and that actually Iran is proving to be a unifying force for the Jewish state and the Sunni world. Uh, but let me ask you one final question, which is that um, with Iran and other Islamic fundamentalism bullying Muslims in the 21st century, how likely is a rapprochement between our two religions and therefore some kind of settlement between Israel and the Palestinians. You know, we, we have seen no, no, a thousand times no. And the wonder being that, you know, he doesn't want Abbas to be the leader that um, stops the, uh, the, 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 the right of return because he's scared for his life. Um, you know, when are we going to get there? The reality on the ground, Johnny, is changing. You know, Mahmoud Abbas can scream till the camels come home but ultimately the reality on the ground is that young people that I meet in the West Bank in East Jerusalem and indeed those coming out of Gaza have been to the crossing 
go and speak to everyone that you, you meet them and people just want to move on a young generation is sick and tired of this you know th this is the internet generation this is the twitter generation this is the facebook instagram and the unknown app generation and polling done by the saudis and others tells us that those young people want to be part of the global economy do well contribute and have their dignity back many of them in in, in eastern jerusalem are, are more content living under israeli rule than under un, yeah. under you know mahmoud abbas's west bank um, dictatorship so on the question of when i think we've just got to keep this current momentum don't forget that the shia iranians are a tiny population in, in contrast to 1.8 billion muslims if saudi arabia and egypt change course as they are then you know with sunni muslims on board with its alliance with with, with with israel what we should be looking forward to is sunni muslims coming to jerusalem and going to the holy sites and asking the question that we are children of one one abrahamic family yes we all now thanks to the determination of the israeli people who saw off you know, tens of conquerors preserve the belief and the light of the one god we've benefited we are we are offshoots of judaism we are downstream from from judaism now once we accept that then what we want to see is more Muslims, Gulf Arabs and others from around the world, Indonesia, Turkey and others, come to Jerusalem, trade freely, live in the hotels, enjoy the security and recognize that. And I ask that question ultimately, and I, as, even as I say this, I know it's controversial and it might land me in trouble, but it's worth saying this, that I can go to the Western Wall. I can go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Why can't Jewish and other friends come to what was the Temple Mount or the Haram al-Sharif and pray in those mosques. Why not? Why is it wrong for Jewish and other friends to come into the Temple Mount area? And, and we've got to have an open and fair conversation about the holy sites that Muslims have Mecca and Medina. Why is it so wrong to allow for our Jewish friends and Jewish cousins and our elders to say they have every right proven through scripture, through archaeology and through the blood and sweat of their forefathers, our Jewish forefathers, to have access to Jerusalem as their indivisible capital. And the more people visit Jerusalem, the more that reality takes on yeah. meaning yeah. In, in Arab and Muslim countries. And when will someone from the Arab world, from the Muslim world, revoke the right of return? I don't think you'll have a specific moment, but I think reality will just spell that out. You just have to conduct polling with Palestinians living in Canada or the US. Are they seriously going back? They're not. But reality is that those stuck in the refugee camps in Lebanon and in Jordan and in other parts of the Middle East should be given citizenship, should be given jobs, should be given documentation with which they can travel. And that's the responsibility on, on many Arab governments that they recognize these great people as as part of their citizenship they've been there now for three or four generations and so you know revoking it looks like reality on the ground changing and giving them documentation and access this is why for whatever criticism we have of the current white house the the jared kushner plan puts 50 billion dollars over 10 years on the table backed by four sovereign wealth funds three of whom were arabs that matters and that's the reality on the ground that will change Ed Hussein, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Johnny, for having this great talk, talking with you. Look forward to being in touch.